Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Three, two, one, and we're on air in City Limits, and um, I'm Kevin Healy sitting over here. We've got Lynn Drummond in the studio. Lynn, well done last week. You carried the show on International Women's Day. Oh, thanks. I hope everybody <laughs> enjoyed it. <laughs> sure you did. Oh, you yeah. enjoyed it. Of course you did. I did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark Owen over there, who's... Uh, who's that? Mark, you had a bit of a bit of dental surgery since we last saw you. Are you recovering? Yes, recovering well. I had four wisdom teeth removed, which was not a lot of fun, actually. It's something you only want to do once in your life, is have your wisdom teeth removed. But but it's it's all all past the worst now. Good, and Andy's pressing the buttons over there. Andy, well done. How are we going? Going well, going (laughs) well. Yes, we're all... uh, Well, so far, we're... (laughs) We've made it to uh, a minute past nine. I'm going to cause all sorts of ructures making noise with papers here because I'm in total confusion. To be honest, I'm in total confusion. That's the answer to your question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He has a mighty collection of papers here. But uh, a couple of things I I thought worth me... Well, one, I don't really need the papers to talk about, but the the gas summit today, I mean, it's a good name for it, isn't it, with the Prime Minister and those Mm. companies who are involved, gas... Um, but they, uh, we've got an extraordinary situation where, where the reason there's a shortage of gas is, we all know the reason, we, we, we're exporting it because it's much more profitable to export it. Mm. And the companies are saying, oh, but we could supply the domestic market with all the gas, you know, this, this domestic market, we're in a country that's floating with so much bloody gas anyway, if you can let us have more of it. Mm. And no one for a second believed if they got more of it, that too would be exported because it's more uh, profitable, mm, do they? Exactly. I mean, no one would believe that, would they? No one would believe that. No. No, no. Uh, but the more extraordinary thing is that AGL in the last couple of days have said they're investigating a multi-billion dollar project to build a floating platform, a floating wharf, to import gas for the domestic market. What? Really? Yes. So you've got this ridiculous situation... Uh, which shows just how irrational capitalism is. A country that's got so much gas that we are one of the biggest exporters in the world are talking about importing it for the local market. I mean. Yeah, that, that's crazy, yeah. isn't it? Uh, and the, I mean, that also, of course, has all sorts of environmental consequences huge, as well. Huge environmental consequences. And I know that um, you know, the South Australian Premier came out yesterday and said that they're going to embrace gas as a, as a backup to their renewable energy I'm not sure what to think about that. There is an argument to say that we do need some some fossil fuel baseload backup, but I'm not sure whether or not that's going about it the right way. But I do worry that it's going to put more pressure on, on the fracking lobby. And also, of course, you know, that while they're saying, well, gas is better than coal, it's still a fossil fuel that pollutes. Exactly, yeah, and, uh, exactly. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's like... Uh, it's like 
tea and coffee as to which one and caffeine. I'm pouring tea, by the way. I hope people can hear that. Good. Um, uh, you know, tea is better than coffee because it's got less caffeine, but it's still got lots of caffeine. Exactly. Unless you drink Chinese teas like this one and you have very little at all. But, um, so it's the same thing. That's right. So it's just... Bloody ridiculous. I, I'll try and find that cutting because it really is quite amazing, this situation where... Um, and and on, the, on the top of that, just, uh, just while I'm looking for it, just to mention, um, a report came out from the World Health Organisation this week saying that more than one in four deaths in children under five are linked to polluted environments. Mm. Each year, environmental risks such as indoor and outdoor pollution, secondhand smoke, unsafe water and poor sanitation kill about 1.7 million children. About 570,000 under five die each year from respiratory infections attributable to air pollution and secondhand smoke. And here we are talking about more gas and... Mm. Does it say specific countries? It doesn't, but one assumes a lot of those would be in in third world countries with indoor pollution, etc., where they they burn fossil fossil fuel indoors to... uh, to cook and warm mm. themselves. Mm. But I've heard also that even in London, that they're um, they're attributing um, a, a large number of deaths every year to pollution in London. So yeah, mm. just goes to show that. I mean, we we also use fossil fuels to cook and heat ourselves, but um, that's done elsewhere, so it doesn't actually get into the house directly. That's right. Yes, we have a degree of separation, don't <laughs> yes, we? Yes, that's right. That's yes. right. That's, uh, that's our difference. Yes. Uh, and, of course, at the same time, you've got um, the fossil fuel industry still running the line that uh, it can't compete with wind and solar because they're so heavily subsidised. Now, they don't mention the subsidies that they get. Exactly. Um, and, indeed, there was an article by Brendan Pearson, a wonderful thinker. He's the chief executive of the Minerals Council. They, they commissioned a report, and surprise, surprise, it proves their point. Um, and he had a, an article in the Fin Review with the headline, Wind and Solar Can Only Win on a Tilted Playing Field. And, of course, on, on their argument, um, on their, they never ever in their argument in terms of costs mention mm. the costs of the pollution they cause. Well, exactly. That's, that's not factored yeah. in. And when yeah. we're facing a climate emergency, um, I think that's a good excuse to tilt the playing field somewhat. I mean, that, that is why we tilt the playing field, why we yeah. should tilt the playing field, because we want to create a clean energy future and not create a uh, climate catastrophe. And indeed, there was a... Uh, uh, well, I'll come to it in the housing situation, I think, because um, the... It's also the the what is it, renewable energy that that body that funds renewable energy projects is actually funding uh, a number of houses which will be well, well they're funding them because they're going to be state of the art in terms of environmental considerations in outer Sydney but they're going it's been, the funding's going directly to uh, non profit community groups but not through not to public housing and I no. raise that later but I can't see why that shouldn't just be direct public housing. Yes, exactly, exactly. Anyway, that's... Uh, that's I also don't understand why it just isn't law now that all all new houses have solar power built into them. Mm, that should just be... Water tanks. Water tanks, solar power, that should just be across the board yeah, by now. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. why not make state-of-the-art from the outset? Exactly. Uh, if there's a separate... There was a separate article, again, I might raise it later, where uh, the industry is saying that... Uh, the the res- current restrictions on Chinese investments causing problems because they tend to buy these smaller units that are you know jerry built, mm. um, 
and so that these aren't selling at the moment very well and it's a real problem. But they're actually admitting in terms of that what they're saying that they are jerry building these yes. bloody things and yes. um and, and that you know, they just lie vacant but but also now they're worried that they won't sell and they're gonna be caught with, with with debt uh, to the banks because the banks the banks raised the issue actually. The banks are worried that the developers won't be able to pay them because these well, things might... You yeah. know, there's an odd it's saying tragic, that if you, if you live by the sword, you die by the yeah. sword, don't you? You don't know who to bury for, do you? Banks or developers in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> as bad as one another. <laughs> don't forget real estate agents as well. They're partly to blame as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but it's a tough choice, isn't it? Uh, speaking of which, and this is in your area uh, very much, uh, Mark... Uh, suburban residents are on notice that they will need to help bear the weight of rapid population growth. And this is the Urban Development Institute of Australia um, saying nimbyism is, nimbyism is um, rife in certain Melbourne suburbs. The middle ring needs to start considering the weight it needs to carry and its responsibilities not only to the city but to the state. It needs zone reform to make its contribution. The growth areas are carrying the load as supply is pushed outward. Um, now... They also, they're saying Melbourne's population is expected to nearly double to 8 million over the next 35 years. So again, they keep budgeting and, and you know, planning for um, pretty much exponential population growth without any controls. And exactly, exactly. And it's not sustainable. Setting aside the climate impact of any kind of development, and we need to be looking at, should we be minimising development because of the climate emissions and the fact that we are facing a climate emergency. And that aside, I'm sure that Melbourne's population could double in a way that is, is sustainable, that takes into account looking after the food bowl, that takes into account biodiversity, that takes into account creating walkable communities, but not at the pace that it's happening now, not at the rate that it's happening now. It, it takes time in order to plan well. Um, and when you have the, the population increasing at this rate, you get a lot of ad hoc development, you get a lot of poor quality, poor planned um, densification of the middle suburbs and you get a lot of poor quality, poor planned uh, car dependent housing estates on the urban fringe. So eventually people are going to sort of respond to this and as people see their neighbourhoods get increasingly changed um, through this, more and more people are going to be driven to fringe parties like One Nation and that's what concerns me a lot. So I think that it's important to talk about population and that people... Um, on the progressive side of politics, talk about population so that we can make sure that we create a policy that is compassionate but sustainable. And, and importantly, that public transport infrastructure is always in sync and ahead of population growth because unless you have that in place first, you get really bad outcomes. Mm. Yeah. And on that, on that, um, allied to that, the government's about to release, or has just released, I think it's about to actually, the a, a new plan called Plan Melbourne Refresh, the new urban master plan. Now they they seem to come up with one of these a year. I, um, it's carrot, the, it's the previous one disappears. On that's right. Yeah, and, uh, it, it, it's it's a way of it's a way of distracting people and making people think that everything's going to be okay. They get these little catchphrases like the twenty minute city, and then meanwhile the developers just keep. 
doing what they're doing. Well, there was know. 20, 30, and every government comes up with a new yeah. one. Yeah, um, none of them, and they all end up encroaching on the on the boundaries and the extreme. The, so, yeah. you know, so the urban growth boundaries or the boundaries that are supposed to control urban growth and keep greenery out there end up getting they all get disappear. Yeah, they just keep extending it. And yeah. most of the current growth seems to be happening in the northwest, where yeah. there's, as we said before, there's those rare grasslands that are not much left of them, but what's left is going to be destroyed totally by development. So. Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty nasty stuff. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. But by the way, anything you wanted to raise? By the way, yeah. Uh, any- Lynn, do you have any- anything you'd any- like to yeah. raise at this stage? Um, I was uh, just quickly. Yeah, I've been in Sydney for a couple of a couple of days, and I was actually talking to a, a couple of people. One for the Randwick Council, and another one who set up a. Um, it's called the Waverton Hub, and hopefully she'll be in our studio in a couple of months. Um, it's very much to do with. Um, Helping um, people, older people from say you know sixties on, maybe older, to avoid coming to go in retirement villages. Um, the uh, the hub is a community based um, project, which is the first in Australia, and that's one of the things I like to ask. I mention later when we get on to housing. When you get on to Jeff, yeah, yeah. Okay. fantastic. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, and also the the OECD, which is always giving us advice on how to run our economy, etc. Mm. It it, um, it says that uh, we think it's got some, something to say about our housing situation as well. By the way, which is very good. Mm, but it's come out. It. Did you notice last week it came out and said that housewives are a drain on our economy? Oh yes, I saw that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, housewives are now a drain. I mean, in some ways, they uh, some of their arguments are. Uh, uh, the valid in that they say a lot of women, because the woman stays home with the kids, it interrupts their career. And so you've got very talented and educated women who are not giving full potential to their, mm. to their capacity, to their own capacity. But they, but they talk about it purely in terms of the contribution to the mm. overall economy, not to the woman herself or anything exactly, else. Exactly, yeah. So they, but, uh, yeah, but it's just um, – but anyway, apparently – these bloody housewives they're a drain on the economy drain on the economy, drain on the economy. what about the guys are they not staying home looking after the kids so well, I think they're most, a drain on the economy as well, well I, I think most of the guys like the people at OECD are a drain on the economy and they're all blokes so <laughs> <laughs> yes the answer is yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Now, speaking of uh, well, a woman who is spending her time working for all of us is Julie Bishop, of course. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Now, Julie has come out in the last couple of days. She, 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 they keep saying, you know, on, on the situation between the US and China, uh, Australia supports both. And um, we support both because uh, only because China's we're one of our major trading partners. So uh, that we have to, we don't want to upset them too much, do we? No. But she's come out with the most extraordinary comments. She, she says the United States must increase its engagement in the region because the rise of China poses a risk to stability and prosperity, which doesn't sound like being nice to them too much. This was a, a lecture she gave in Singapore a couple of nights ago. Um, she's used strong language to warn of the growing threat posed by China, especially Beijing's territorial ambitions in the East and South China Sea. She said the region was anxious as it waited for signs from Washington. She said China's refusal to embrace democracy meant it was unsuited to be a regional leader, whereas the US, a country with no direct territorial disputes, well, it just invades everyone, <laughs> was, was uniquely placed to do so. Um, critically, the domestic political system and values of the United States reflect the liberal rules-based order that we seek to preserve and defend, and do we defend it? We send the troops out there and we 
defended. While non-democracies such as China can thrive when participating in the present system, an essential pillar of our preferred order is democratic community. And um, she said, now this is the bit that I thought was absolutely wonderful. She she said uh, there had been a concerted effort over the years to ensure... And this is pleading with the United States to come and, you know, and, and, mm. and retain, et cetera, et cetera, to ensure the more powerful nations do not bully their neighbours. Apparently the, the non-bully is the United States. I see yes. she's heading off to meet, um, oh, what's that? The president who's causing a few problems with drugs lately and killing off a few people. The president of Philadelphia. yes. She's meeting him as well. I didn't see that, but um, (laughs) they'll get on well together. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, reserve comment. (laughs) Uh, And that's the irony of it all. The irony of it all. On that same situation at 9am, we'll try, we'll take a break after this and try Howard out. Um, you'll be pleased to know as well, uh, Donald Trump's interest in adopting Australia's so-called merit-based immigration system and switching away from low-skilled foreign workers appears to be the culmination of 12 months of private talks between his advisers and Australian officials. Trump's senior policy advisor, immigration hardliner Stephen Miller, first met Australian diplomats, diplomats last March at the Washington residence of Ambassador Joe Hockey. At the time, Trump was, etc., when he was was calling Mexicans um, rapists and murderers. The ultra-conservative Mr Miller showed interest in better understanding Australia's immigration system, which, um, etc., according to people familiar with the discussions, Australian officials briefed Mr Miller on Canberra's targeted immigration rules and point systems. And it goes on, and then this week, uh, in a speech, uh, Trump praised Australia's immigration um, um, policies. So you'll be pleased to know that what we thought, or what we might consider to be uh, fairly inhumane, uh, he thinks are wonderful. That's another worry. It doesn't surprise when me, though. We, but we train them. Yeah, I know. It doesn't surprise and me, And speaking of immigration, because we haven't, I've made tributes in the past couple of, you know, last week on the week it was twice, but because this is the first uh, city limits we've had uh, as such since, um, since he died, Trevor Grant, of course, um, great fighter for refugees, among mm. other things, and... Uh, and uh, Trevor was on this program several times, plus, of course, all the programs he did here. He started Refugee Radio, which still goes on Sunday mornings at 10. He did the What's the, what's the, right. what's yeah. the Score Sport, which was about profession, how professional sports take it over. Yes. Uh, he was, of course, a, a leading sports writer in the mainstream media as well. But last time we had him on here, uh, Mark, it was not long ago. Cause it wasn't. He, he, it was, he it told was, us he only had months to live It then. was in November. Just, it just goes to show, when, I, when, I, when, when we spoke to him in November... I would. I thought that he would last longer than he he, he did. Yeah, we had a long chat to him after the show as well down the yeah, Coffee Lounge. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, but it, he came on talking about the the problems with the PBS, the the pharmaceutical benefit scheme and yes. system, and the fact that he had to pay seventeen thousand dollar a treatment. That's right. For a particular drug that other people got free for another particular cancer. Um, and he can only afford it because he sued both the Herald, he sued News Limited and, and Fairfax and Hardy's because, yes. of course, he had an asbestos-related cancer. And, uh, yes, I see. Yeah, but uh, Tribic, uh, the other station, other station, and in fact, this last Sunday, the Refugee Radio had a terrific tribute to him for a couple of Tamils, and again, that was repeated this morning at 7 o'clock on this station. That's fantastic. Uh, and he was an activist right to the end, yeah, wasn't he? I yeah, mean, I mean, was... things I, I knew he was heavily involved in the whole immigration. He wrote a book, of course, about Sri Lanka and the persecution of the Tamils a couple of years ago. Yes. With some very graphic details of, of torture. 
but he also that you know the Tamils were saying on the on this program on their program this morning and Sunday that that he he you know did so much else he took people he took to appointments he he did all sorts of things to help them in the background at Christmas he people who had nothing he'd go and help and mm. give things to and take them to lunch and so he just did incredible stuff and. Uh, He'll be incredibly sadly missed on this. Oh, he will be very, very, very sadly missed. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it was such a shock to hear that. It just goes to show how quickly these things can take hold. Well, the drug he took. I mean, we know that at this stage, uh, once you get asbestos cancer, you're pretty doomed. But yeah. But the drug he took was able to prolong his life for a couple of years. But at that stage, he said the doctors had said that now it had reached the point where they couldn't do any more. But yeah. Mm. Yeah, very sad indeed. Very sad. He also organised, I remember going, to, we, a couple of, must have been three years ago because my ex-presenter of this programme, Doug Jordan, it must have been the year Doug died, um, we went to the Boxing Day test and Trevor had organised a protest against the Sri Lankan cricket team and uh, we're all there handing out leaflets and uh, wow. to a crowd that couldn't give a stuff about the leaflets, to be honest. Yeah. But anyway, we, we gave yeah. them out. But uh, yeah, just all sorts of things he did. Fantastic. He was, of course, the chief cricket writer for the age for a long time. Yes, yeah. Going way back. Yeah, OK, that's that. Let's uh, take a break and see if we can get Howard on the phone. OK, Howard Morosi on the line from Friends of Public Housing. And Howard, well, glad you're available. Um, look, it's going to be a pretty probing question because really it's a report on public housing. So what do you want to tell us about it? OK, well, there's a few. I'll just update you on the developments um, with public housing and housing. Uh, the big one is that the Andrews government has made an announcement um, that they're going to provide a whole lot of money to um, the community <coughs> social housing sector. Uh, $100 million in low-cost loans directly from the government to the housing associations. Uh, and there's also a $1 billion um, fund, uh, which is a collaboration between government and the private sector, um, to, um, to help them out as well. Um, they have not talked about increasing public housing at all. Uh, on the other hand, they've talked about... They've said they're going to transfer 4,000 public housing properties to the social housing sector. Uh, that's the management of it, uh, not the title at this point. So um, it's possible that our campaign has actually stopped them from transferring title. But my understanding is that if you transfer management, uh, the important things like <coughs> rent and security and uh, the ability to um, cherry-pick your tenants um, actually is at the discretion of the uh, social housing group and they're not bound by the public housing um, rules. Um, uh, People have probably seen that they're talking about abolishing stamp duty for first home buyers uh, under a certain amount. I think it's 600,000, which I agree with. It's a good thing. Um, They've promised something like $20 million to fix rooming houses. Uh, again, you know, you can't really argue with that. But the, again, the priority should be um, looking after its own sector, which it controls, which it sets the rents for, which it provides security for, and they're not doing it. They're actually doing the opposite. That's the Andrews government. Mm. Um, they're also, part of that deal was also, but they they would give people the chance to have equity. The state would have so much, and I think I think it was 25%, and you'd own 75% of the property. Uh, again, it's putting money into uh, into the private sector in many ways. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, so also the federal government has been making noises on it as well. Mm. Um, the So the Turnbull government is actually looking at doing a similar thing, unfortunately. 
but what would you expect anyway? I mean, you're talking about... We're talking about people using their super to uh, get into housing as well. Yeah, well, there's that. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I'm not really... I see super as actually a capitalist uh, tool um, which takes wages away from people and Mm. uh, props up the um, stock market and the uh, capitalist sector anyway. Exactly. Exactly. This is clawing back a little bit of this. Uh, to help people actually own their own house, I don't. Although I'm a public housing supporter, I I also support the right of people to own their own house, and I believe the government should be regulating that sector to make that more affordable. I agree. I mean, even ethical super funds invest in companies like Stockland. Even if you try to do the right thing through the stock market through through superannuation, it's still difficult, in my opinion, to be completely ethical. So, why not put your money into buying a house? Yeah. Not to mention the guy, I can't remember what the name of the company was, but he bet a whole lot of funds of his so-called ethical super on uh, the fact that the um, economy would go down under Trump. And uh, I don't know how you'd call that ethical. I, mean, I, guess you'd be <laughs> I don't hoping. know how you would call that ethical. Either. <laughs> Just so case that, the that company went under. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've we've got to keep questioning what ethical means. We we, we, we can't just be um, we can't just sort of rest on our laurels and just keep using the word ethical without constantly being well, vigilant. You know, like this yeah. guy gambled money. Yeah, exactly. for Christ's sake, that's yeah, what exactly. it is. Exactly. But you've also got super funds. I mean, one of the in the original. Uh, City Link, um, one of the biggest investors was the Uni Super, Super Fund uh, yeah. in something that we considered to be socially unacceptable. Yep. Um, again, you've got some of the biggest developers, particularly down Docklands Way and around the city and across the big cities, across the, particularly down the East Coast, uh, are super funds um, building major buildings in which there's absolutely no affordable public social or any other sort of housing but the most expensive offices and, and, and apartments. Hmm. Yep. And you've got fossil-free super funds who are investing in suburban sprawl. It's still fossil fuel-dependent development, you know, so, yeah. Can I just... Uh, Howard, hi, it's Lynn. Could you just expand a little bit on what you said briefly about what they're doing with rooming houses? I've had personal experience of rooming houses, and I'm not quite sure. I haven't been in Victoria all that long. I just wonder what they're doing with, about them. Are they, uh, I, think it, I think it was just... It was a fair bit of money. It was $20 million, I think, from memory, and I think it was to, uh, to fix up you know, to, to actually improve the state of the rooming houses in Victoria. But again, they're private places. It's a good thing, you know, it's a small amount of money, but again, they're not putting any money into public housing. Well, the one I stayed in when in transit um, was um, most of the people who were staying there had court cases that took to uh, the Victorian courts for the, the owners that were running these places and doing all sorts of weird things. Yeah, there's a few. I just wonder if they were having better monitoring of their activities. Yeah, well, actually, the um, homeless groups, um, when uh, the Flinders Street uh, protest was cleared, you know, the, the media um, made a big deal about the fact that there was an alternative accommodation offered to the homeless people there. But um, homeless people generally don't want to live in rooming houses. They're expensive. They can cost something like $200 a week. Um, and uh, they're not safe. You know, it's physically not safe and it's often terrible environments uh, and very poor state, whereas they do want to live in public housing. So if the government wants to help homeless people, don't try and fool us that you're doing something by fixing up rooming houses. You need to actually build public housing and keep it in public hands. Yeah, great. 
Yeah. All right. Any other updates? Uh, Scott Morrison, yeah. Is, uh, he's actually talking about um, setting up some, a model based on uh, the British approach. Again, you know, something that's failed over there, so we've got to do it here. Mm. Um, it's, uh, again, you know, providing tens of millions of dollars um, for the uh, social housing sector via federal government uh, sourcing money from the bond sector. So, again, it's a lose-lose situation for the public. Uh, it's a government um, prov- you know, providing uh, uh, guaranteed returns for the private sector um, and, uh, and then giving it to another private um, institution to provide the housing, which won't be done um, in the best way for the, uh, the end user, the, the tenant. Um, and uh, apparently um, the uh, alternative Liberal Party uh, under Bill Shorten is talking about doing the same thing. They're only talking about community housing. They're not talking about public housing. So we do have the Greens. Greens have made a solid commitment in Victoria to um, public housing and to oppose uh, the transfer of public housing. But uh, their federal policy is weak. So if there's any Greens out there listening, please get involved and try and get your party solidly behind public housing. Um, I think I heard a, uh, an advertisement for the forum this Friday, but there's a forum on the Melbourne City Council proposal to ban uh, the homeless yeah. That's this Friday, 6pm, <laughs> 506 yeah. Elizabeth Street. Yeah. And lastly, our next rally for defend and extend public housing uh, will be on Wednesday the 5th of April from 12 noon to 2pm at State Parliament. Okay, yeah. Your point about Morrison, of course, the federal government and governments generally talk about trying to make housing more affordable, but that's all they talk about. So it's 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 still, and of course, as we keep saying, if, you, if you're lying in the gutter in uh, Elizabeth Street with no money in your pocket, there's probably not much that is affordable. And they won't, they won't make housing more affordable. They have no intention of making no. housing more affordable because no. there are too many people with investment properties, too many yep. negative gearers, too many people are relying upon the capital gains. That, yep. that will never happen. It's just a, a carrot on a stick dangling. Well, it's branch. constant contradiction, isn't it? They, yep. they, if housing prices go down, they say, oh, this is terrible, the this is awful, exactly. it's showing the economy could be in trouble. Exactly. Uh, but then they say, oh, we want to keep them down, but exactly. um, if they go down, it's a problem. So but, they, they, they've got a problem, as I see it. They, they're playing a game with, with us. I mean, you look mm. at in Perth, um, house prices have dropped in Perth, and the property council are, are going crazy. It's like we've, we've Need got government a, help, probably. Yeah, that's right. Well, the media's yeah. got a lot to answer for. You know, they, don't, they don't run a rational, consistent line. They don't. No. They just, they just um, parrot, basically, what's going on. And when it comes down to it, they'll back the current system. Exactly. Apparently, apparently Morrison was actually talking about uh, reducing the concessions on capital gains. Um, so there is some yeah. movement within the government, uh, but it won't be uh, very much in favour of the, um, the public or the end user. John Alexander's made a lot of good uh, noises in favour of home ownership. Um, I'm very impressed with him in that, on that issue, but he hasn't it? said nothing about uh, public housing. As far no, as I know, he said no. nothing about community housing. It does housing. seem that Morrison may bring some small change to capital gains tax in the budget because yep. he, he keeps saying there won't be any change. We're not going to touch negative gearing. It has no impact mm. on the prices at all or on rents. <laughs> um, but but he, when he's asked about capital gains, he says he won't comment, so that's mm. interesting. Any changes, all they will do is they will just slow down the increase in price from here yep. on. And already it's, it's, it's unaffordable. Yeah, I mean, prices to have, to go, have, prices have to go reduced. down, and that's yeah. never going to happen. The, the most we can expect is that the increase will just slow down. Yeah. The other one, well, I thought, also, sorry, go on. To Howard, yeah. Don't forget public interest before corporate interest, which is uh, Joe Toscano's political yeah. party, yeah. which um, you know obviously you would rely on. 
um, to um, attack the uh, corporate uh, and invest gains. Yep. All right. Look, we'll is Jeff Fiedler here? Yes, he is. Um, so look, we'll um, we'll uh, take a break there, Howard. Look, thanks for your time again right. this morning, and uh, and good luck with it all, brother. Thank you, Howard Morosi there. Yeah. 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 Cheers, Howard. Cheers. Okay. Bye. Okay, it's um, it's city limits, and uh, we've got Jeff Fiedler in the studio today from Housing for the Aged Action Group. Jeff, welcome. Come, good to see you. Good morning. Um, good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Good morning. Um, You'll be pleased to know, by the way, that uh, Bomber Thompson, the, uh, this will help you. you know, I'm a situation. Of it, yeah. go on. Well, Bomber uh, Thompson, the ex and captain, premiership captain and Geelong premiership coach, he's just made a, a $7 million uh, property development jackpot uh, out there in um, between Geelong and Mel- Geelong and um, Torquay, Armstrong Creek, which is a big development out there that he's involved in, but they've just sold a bit of it. For a massive amount of money, so there's money in property out there, Jeffrey. If only that's what property's it. for, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and, and Armstrong Creek's buy, 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 sell, sell, Armstrong sell. Creek's Spice. ensuring that Geelong and Torquay are linking up, and uh, <laughs> it's all very good. I'm sure they've got uh, a strong housing policy. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Property sure developers, do, yeah. and also um, uh, recently there was a study that showed that um, by the superannuation industry itself, but nonetheless it showed that uh, a retired couple who rent need a million dollars to survive in their uh, in their retirement now I imagine most of the people that come to your door would be what a million would be pretty light with it. I mean, they need to two, have at three. least a million to be eligible for our <laughs> service to come right. in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, um, it's interesting. Where do they come up with these figures? I, I mean, don't know, but it, it does I, reflect the problem you face. That doesn't the, it? The, the figures that we do look at is um, has anyone got fifty dollars in their bank account um, <laughs> to be able to um, you know survive on a day to day basis, and that's that's. Um, the experience that we're we're finding with um, particularly with private rents going through the roof, but look, there there are actually a lot of um, older people we do try and assist who might have worked for many years of their lives and they might have uh, a modest amount of money. It might be ten, twenty, thirty, even say fifty thousand dollars. But if they're paying, if they've got more than thirty thousand dollars, they're not eligible for public housing at all. So they are really forced into the private rental market. And if they had you talk about needing a million. If you've got fifty grand, that's all your savings for for life. Um, that's maybe what you've got in super. They're going to have to use all that to pay for their private rental. And we know older people who do that calculation and work out well. That's going to last me about um, five years or ten years. And they have pretty dire thoughts as well about what they're going to do at, when that mm. money runs out. Mm. Because when you get to that point, that's where we just did some figures on our on people who've come to see us for 2016 and the average rent being paid paid by people that come to our service is between 50 to 80% of their income wow in rent mm. that's They're, substantial that's that's the average rents that people are paying who are coming to us then you could say okay well that's like a tipping point people are coming to us when they reach that critical uh, part but there are a range of other reasons why people come to us there's mm. um, such as if they get a notice to vacate or if their place isn't adaptable any longer for them as they age. So um, affordability, is, affordability is one of the usually three key factors, but it's always, no matter what someone's circumstances, whether they're living in a place that's not suited for them 
or if the landlord is telling them they're going to throw them out, they're, they're probably already still paying 50 to 80% of their income in rent mm. at that point in time, no matter what their yeah. other circumstances. Well, I worked out, because there was a study this week came out that said that um, it, used the, it said the average weekly wage in Australia was 1800 or 1600 or something, some figure they came up with down there. Yeah. Uh, and on that basis, they said that in Sydney and Melbourne, um, people are pa- renters are paying about 25% roughly of their rent. And I worked out on that basis that if you're on a pension, then the rent is roughly 100% of your income. If you're on the dollar, it's roughly 200% of your income, which would, I suspect, create a bit of a liquidity problem for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll, but, I'll, you know, so you're looking at that. You're looking at probably lower rents or something or cheaper rent somewhere on the line. But yeah. it, even so, well, if you're on well, a pension, you're looking at a massive level of your income going on rent. Yeah. The, I, I mean, there have been, a, you know, those affordability studies that show there's something like three uh, properties in metropolitan Melbourne that are affordable, that is what they describe as um, uh, the, where the rent is less than 30% of someone's income. But um, yeah, well, affordability is just completely through the roof. We, we usually quote the figure of um, a one-bedroom, average one-bedroom property is about $350 a week. Um, and one-bedrooms aren't all that easy to find, so probably the average property is more like a two-bedroom. So that probably gets up around your 100%. But a one-bedroom property takes about 65 to 70% of of an age pension Mm. and these this is really typical costs and what we're seeing historically is this massive increase in everyone including older people on age pensions who are forced to live in the private rental market and uh, with lower rates of home ownership and reductions in expenditure of public housing it's just where governments want people to be because they provide you know, what is it, $4 billion, I think, a year now on Commonwealth rent assistance. So you're supposed to survive on this meagre subsidy and cope in the private rental market. At the same time, we've got a state government that, that's um, just completing a review of the Residential Tenancies Act. And they've made this grand announcement that, oh, we want our tenants to be able to have long-term leases. So what the situation is, is under the current Act, you can have a lease of up to five years. The government's now saying they're going to extend the Act out so that you can have a lease up to 10 years to give people secure tenure. That, that's one thing, but it's not mandatory at all. And at the moment, even though there are, you can get a five-year lease, most landlords only offer you people six, or, six months to 12 months, mm-hmm. and then you're usually on a month-to-month basis after mm-hmm. that. Um, and it doesn't... Um, you know, and then there's, there's the issue of, of there's no rent control whatsoever. So um, mm. even if you had a, a, a lease, you, you're still on a rent that you probably can't afford anyway. Yeah. But these, these are the long-term trends. We're just doing a study on Adelaide at the moment and found the same thing. And Adelaide's much cheaper than Melbourne and Sydney, but we found that 60% of people on age pensions there are paying more than 30% of their income in rent. Mm. And, um, and a high proportion are paying 50% plus in their income in rent. So this is standard now across the board. Mm. It sounds like a crisis, really. Mm. It, yeah. does. Mm. it does. Maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn, I, you had, yeah. yeah. Yes, um, I just wanted to ask you if, you if you feel questions regarding from um, residents, elderly residents might be living in their own place or have to provide service to a rented property that a landlord won't fix something, which is fairly minor. Um, For instance, I spoke to someone from Randwick Council. I was in Sydney a couple of days ago and they said they're constantly fielding um, 
questions from elderly people ringing up saying, can you tell us about service providers that can change my tap washer, uh, do outside window cleaning? My family lives interstate. I'm living on my own. I've got to, to get some really heavy furniture out onto the pavement for the council to collect. Who can help me do that? It's causing a real headache for this particular council. I wondered if you dealt with those sorts of questions and if you didn't, yeah. what do the people do about those? Yeah, sort of is that where people are living in social housing? Or yeah, some yeah. of them are. Yeah, and that's yeah. the Randwick Council. The person I spoke to was a Theresa Mock. She's in charge of the, yeah. the housing housing for elderly people particularly yeah. yeah one of the things we do have found is that with the transfer of public housing stock across to community and social housing providers is that they they aren't as responsive in terms of repairs and that sort of thing because they're they're running as a business they're watching their bottom line much more they're, they're they, they have less funds and they're less um accessible in terms of getting repairs and that sort of thing done let alone improvements We've had a number of cases where tenants have moved into properties and needed um, adaptations done if they're on a walking frame or have some other disability. The community housing providers will say, well, we can provide you with um, a walk-in shower, but we can't do anything about your kitchen. You'll have to find a way of another way of cooking or something like that. Um, whereas with public housing, there was always a fund there that was prioritise for people who have disabilities to get things fixed like that mm. and of course government can draw on other sources of funding but the community housing providers can't so we do hear complaints from tenants saying that they find it harder to get repairs done from social housing providers quite quite commonly and because they're like small businesses I suppose and that's another one of the failures of that that form of housing. I know councils um, that have certain facilities that they can provide or they can do a bit of handiwork around a place, but you have to pay for that. It's usually yes. very cheap, reasonably cheap. Um, the, other, the other person I spoke to was um, a woman called Helen LaRange who set up, initiated the Waverton Hub. I'm sure you've heard of that. Mm. It's first time in Australia that she's created this in 2012. They've got about 300-and-something members. Um, it's, it's almost like... Um, how do I put it, uh, a com not commercially run, but it's like a little retirement village on its yeah, own, but it's yeah. a hub that they've formed mm. for people to get all these sorts of services and help, and they pay $64 a year membership. But one of their members is a plumber, and he comes around and he does work for them a very for a minute peppercorn rent. Yeah, yeah. But I wondered if there was any opportunity in Victoria to get something like that going because she is now trying to yeah. spread it across Australia Doesn't and they don't have to go into retirement places and their families yeah. have decided they're getting everything they need in this Waverton hub which is also Wollstonecraft as well. Yeah. So do they own their places in that situation? Um, they or? have it seems a number of them do but there's a lot of them are also renting yeah. and um, they're, they're in this particular hub because that gives them sense of belonging, social contact, there's lots yep. of events, yep. different things they can get involved with, and they're helping each other a lot too. It sounds yeah. like um, a concept called co-housing that's um, very strong in Europe. And I know mm. there are some organisations yeah. in Melbourne that are trying to get some co-housing projects off the ground. But at this stage, the, um, in terms of affordability for people on low incomes... I understand the co-housing groups are mainly people who've got assets who are trying to build. Mm. I think there's one vertical village that they're planning in the Yeah, people the city are and get together and then mm. they build their own apartments. They become the yeah. developer of their own development. Yeah. But you've still got to have money to get in there. You do. Mm. Yeah. There, there's mm. savings and that sort of thing. They have areas of communal land and that sort of thing. And, and as you're describing, they, they, they're sharing 
um, the roles and responsibilities of running it. So I guess there are savings there well, too. The, but it, yes. it'd be great if we. You know, there's lots of models. You know, the, with, the actual with, mission. Sorry to interrupt. The yeah. actual mission of the hub is to keep people in their homes as long as possible. Yeah. So they don't have to go into retirement places yep. or institutions, yep. and that that's working. Mm. There's another yeah. concept called. Um, well, it's based on Humanitas from the Netherlands, and mm. it was tried to be developed here called Apartments for Life, which was the same sort of thing, and that's. Another step again, perhaps, where it's looking at introducing aged care into people where people are living independently. And the idea is that 95% of the people who live there should be able to stay there for their whole lives with, with services brought in. So it's having really adaptable housing, but it's it's really about a, like a residential um, uh, aged care form of accommodation right up to residential aged care. So you could have dementia or, or some other serious illness and still be able to live independently, have your own your own unit mm. within that development um i was three years in the netherlands i've just come back oh, and right. i also i didn't actually mm. see it but yeah. i knew about it and i yeah. wondered how that could be developed in australia yeah. as well they're trying yeah. there was a documentary recently about um students who are, are being introduced into that they're offering students um low rent um to become sort of supportive neighbors for yeah. older people in that situation yeah. too yeah. so they, they try yeah. all different sorts of things i think this is one of the faults in in australia is we don't Governments need to invest in a whole lot of models of housing to suit mm. different people. They and do. there are lots of really exciting ideas that can be developed like that. But I should also say that cooperative housing, of course, isn't a, a, a new concept in Australia. We've had co-ops mm. in, in rental housing co-ops in Victoria for decades, mm. and they're still operating now. I mean, they've been tried to be um, taken up by the large um, community housing associations, but and most of them have uh, been taken up by those, but they still operate somewhat independently and I, I think you know that's another great model that that can work so it can re- work as a rental housing concept too now how do you get it off the ground though is it so well you need government to support it this is the whole problem i know as you've been discussing there's <laughs> lots of um governments putting a lot of money into giving um incentives and in, yeah, uh, fund, to funds to comment on that but it's all it's all private sector stuff isn't yeah, it? yeah and the worry we've got at the moment is with the the announcements that morrison's making around things like this bond aggregator which i would hope you'd explain that to me kevin not mm. sure I, or that, that it's exactly a bond that's that. aggregated aggregated by a bond <laughs> oh, thank you very much yes, that's it I so do with alan bond no. follow that yeah. um anyway it the the what really concerns us is there's a, a large amount of money that's currently um, made available under the National Affordable Housing Agreement. But a lot of that money that goes towards capital funding of public and social housing. But And uh, I know you've been talking about Morrison going over to Britain and being so impressed with what's going on over mm. there. But um, what we're concerned about is that he, he'll come back with this idea about... Um, changing the whole structure of funding for, for housing towards um, incentives for the pri- for private enterprise and scrap the National Affordable Housing Agreement altogether. And that would mean the complete end of public housing as we know it. I mean, the, the death knell of it completely. Well, last month, uh, April, was, April and Howard, in fact, last month as well, were both saying, making that point that they believe the government is going to scrap it. Is, yeah. is there any more on that? I think there's a lot of pushback happening. Um, that, that I think there'd be a reluctance this is to the, do it. This is the federal fund that the states that helps with public or helps both, right. so-called helps with public Yeah, there's anyway. two funds. There's the National Affordable Housing Agreement um, and there's the National Partnership Agreement on Housing. And currently um, the Commonwealth provides $1.3 billion a year for the National Affordable Housing Agreement, so capital funding for housing. 
and about $250 million a year is spent on the National Partnership Agreement on Homelessness, which is basically just homelessness services to help people who are on the streets and mm. people at risk of homelessness. Um, so that $1.3 billion, they're looking at how they can save that money, I suppose, like they are with everything else. And if they can create tax incentives and all, you know, put the money into that for investors rather than directly funding housing, then that would just completely change the housing landscape. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Mm. Um, an, he's giving an address on the 10th of April, which is not that uh, far before the, the, um, the May budget, where all the details will be announced. But they're making, uh, I'm sure you've been discussing that affordable housing is a key keynote aspect of the, mm. they're saying for the budget this year, but he's going to make his address on the 10th of April. So that's the key day that we we expect to find out more detail about their plans. Yeah. Are. And the homeless, of course, being thrown off the streets of Melbourne must be whooping it up at the thought of affordable housing coming on. Well, if we can push them into the back streets yeah. where, they, where they aren't yeah. seen <laughs> or... You know, the, the terrible um, murder that we saw recently of some people in Footscray. Oh, it was uh, terrible. Those mm. outrageous things are going to yep. happen more and more yep. If, yep. Um, unless governments do it, you know, address yeah. the direct problem. Well, on that, getting to that residential review they're doing, um, you gave evidence to it, did you not? Um, we did. Both the, there's been a Residential Tenancies Act review yes. of the legislation. The other one is there's um, a parliamentary inquiry into retirement Housing. They're the, that's the one I'm thinking of. And, yep. and, you, and that one, because just last week, I think it was on Radio National, I heard some, some so-called expert make the point that Victoria has the, the least strong, the weakest regulations in this area of retirement villages of any state. Um, yeah. Comment on that? I tend to agree with that, yeah. The way the retirement villages industry has been so powerful here, and keeping in mind that the retirement villages industry is the is one sort of element of the whole uh, housing construction industry, so it's a massive part of the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, they have set up these conglomerate, um, often gated retirement village communities that, um, with contracts that are so stitched up in their own favour and they just get residents to sign them, that the contracts are the basic law, is the only law that really protects people with their agreements. So the, the Retirement Villages Act itself provides very little protection at all. So people rely on the contracts for any sort of protection they get, mm. and they're, they're designed and drawn up by the, the developers and the and operators. Indeed, part of, this, part of this discussion last week I heard was that most older people either don't read the contracts or can't understand them, yeah. and then find they're up for all sorts of hidden fees and all sorts of costs they weren't aware of when they yes. You could easily lose half or more of your home when you leave. Um, they have all of these other things like refurbishment fees where you're expected to, um, in some cases, completely refurbish the inside of your place before you sell it. So you might have only you know, lived in it for a certain number of years, but you're required to replace the kitchen, the bathroom. It might cost thirty to $50,000 or more uh, at a place that could sell adequately as it was. So again, um, you know, and often the the developers have their own contractors who do, it just goes on and on. It's endless in terms of the the creaming of funds and administration yeah. fees, deferred management fees. It's uh, it's just a money making machine, really. And residents feel really often really intimidated in in these environments mm. where um, because there are very few rights. Uh, for example, there are, uh, there's nothing in the legislation that provides privacy protection. So unless there's something in your contract. Uh, an operator can just walk into your home at any time. Um, there's no rights in regards to repairs if you've 
most people have leasehold arrangements, so it's all in a form of rental in a sense. Um, uh, you don't have necessarily have rights into how you can get things repaired. So really basic things that, are, that exist in the Re- Residential Tenancies Act that we take for granted, those sorts mm-hmm. of procedures and protections, even though we think residential tenancies is pretty bad, it's just appalling with retirement villages. So one of the key things that we've... Uh, we're very glad the parliamentary inquiry has recommended is a review of the Retirement Villages Act. That's good to hear. This is a state inquiry, isn't it? The state inquiry, yeah. 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 Uh, so it's a parliamentary inquiry, and now it's up to the government. They've got six months to respond to that. Um, there's also a call for the introduction of an ombudsman because yeah. at the moment there isn't any um, place within VCAT if someone has a problem that they can uh, easily take a matter. It, it, they have to take a matter under consumer law, so it can take up to six months to have a case heard in, in VCAT. Uh, if you've got even a basic minor problem in your retirement village, it can take that long to get there. Mm-hmm. And people get exhausted. And they have to you know, spend money on lawyers and yeah. the retirement village operators you know, have the best legal teams in exactly. town behind yeah. them. And it's just again, it's like very all daunting. All it's other very forms daunting. of daunting. Yeah. I would find it daunting, but I mean yeah. to be, you know, in your latter years, to yeah. have to deal with all of that. It's, it's just, the last thing people are looking it's for. The last yeah. thing you want. But I guess it's just another of the power imbalances that we see for, exactly. you know, for people in housing these days. Exactly. Is this Australia wide these problems with the retirement? They are at the Australia yeah. wide, yeah. but Kevin's yeah. right. There are varying uh, levels of protection in the legislation in other states, and we're, mm. we're very unhappy with the laws here. Um, so similarly with the boom in um, retirement type of caravan park living as well, there's a, pe- there's a lot of fear amongst people that live in that sort of accommodation too. So we, that's actually an area that's missed out very much in the retirement, yeah. the Residential Tenancies Act review and in this retirement living inquiry, there's nothing really been dealt with in terms of caravan parks. So we're also trying to push the government to, to have a, an inquiry into that area as well. Mm. Good stuff. Yeah, it's been a long-term Good. baby, Bill, hasn't it? The caravan park, and you're yeah. still fighting it. We, we still fight yeah. that one, yeah. 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 Is, is the Andrews government, are they op- open to this? Do you think that they're, they're going to... They're, they're open to inquiries, but our right. fear all the time is that industry, the housing industry, always creates so much noise and mm. frightens the government so much and stops mm. them from taking strong action. They have so much power. Yeah, like we believe in, in people being able to have minimum term leases, yes. that sort of thing, so yes. that a, a landlord has to provide you a lease of a certain period of time, mm. whereas the government will never do that because the industry says we'll, we'll leave mm. the industry in droves if you do that. Mm. The other key one is that, um, that they haven't announced yet is that we've been pushing for minimum housing standards in private rental accommodation. Yes. At the moment, a landlord can let a place without heating, without yeah. proper insulation, w- without um, you know other... Uh, good conditions in their housing and landlords are saying if you introduce minimum housing standards again we'll will leave the industry in droves It'll and the destroy, government that's back, right. back destroy off. the economy totally that's right <laughs> we've done it again jeff we're out of time but um look thanks for your time